Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. When you run a podcast, you're always looking for interesting stories that provide some kind of lesson, which is why I know you're going to enjoy meeting my next guest, Heidi Denning. Now, Heidi's had a few challenges on her journey. At a young age, she experienced a paralyzing illness where she lost the use of her legs. She was kidnapped at gunpoint while traveling through Africa. She went through the terror of a tsunami and narrowly escaped being burned alive when petrol bombs were thrown at her room. I mean, this sounds more like a movie script than a business story, but as all entrepreneurs will attest, you can't always control what happens to you, but you can control what you do about it. Now, Heidi's a great example of somebody that has used her experience to change her life and the lives of those around her. And it just so happens that she founded a business which she eventually sold 17 years later. Now, we'll talk to Heidi about her journey in life and business, and she shares some great insights that just may change your perspective on the world too. I hope you enjoy the show. This is Heidi Denning. G'day, Heidi. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me on your show, Simon. It's great to be here. Absolute pleasure. Um, I I read your bio and I must admit I was pretty excited about this episode. Um, You know, there's some pretty, pretty wild stuff there and, and, you know, in and amongst, I guess, personal stuff, there's you've built businesses and you've built and exited and done all sorts of really amazing stuff. Yeah, there's um, some people say I'm like a cat with nine lives. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but in the middle of that, yeah, I have. I have built and sold and built, you know, built a few businesses and um, sold and exited. So I think we're in the right place for a good conversation. Yeah, great. Um, would you like to kick off? Maybe, maybe you can give everyone just a little bitty, bitty background. Yeah, I um, I like to th- think that I've got education in my DNA and uh, that has come through in lots of different flavours. Uh, it's starting, starting as a secondary school teacher. I taught in high schools here in Sydney, uh, in Vanuatu and in London um, for quite a while. I then have educated, as I like to say rather than taught, educated uh, small children on Pacific, remote Pacific islands. I've taught adults how to move more and rejuvenate and I'm now teaching leaders and teams, well, educating le- leaders and teams, uh, how to be more resilient to the uncertain and changing times that we're all experiencing. 
Yeah, fantastic. Um, well, first of all, you deserve a medal for teaching kids. Um, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, Simon, it's so funny because, um, you know, people who, because I, like I do a lot of keynote speaking and people are like, oh, that just petrifies me. How do you do that? I'm like, well, listen, if you've been a secondary school teacher, there is no audience worse than hormonal cocktail teenage girls in front of you I can let you know now if I survive that I can survive any audience <laughs> absolutely absolutely and here we all are at the moment in a lockdown you know with with homeschooling and stuff oh. going on I, I must have been I'm very fortunate my kids schools they is very organized and they're on zoom and they're kind of doing their own thing I, I actually probably should know more about what they're doing <laughs> but on the other hand I'm trading that off with everybody kind of seems quiet and doing their thing so I'm I sure maybe I'm fine. Yeah, yeah I don't want to interrupt a good thing no definitely not not definitely not <laughs> uh, awesome so uh so hey i'm, I'm going to uh, i'm going to call out a couple of things here because i i know we're going to chat about a, a business that you obviously built and and eventually exited which you know i'm really really keen to sort of unpack with you but you know when i read your bio you know there's stuff from potentially paralyzing Ill- illnesses <laughs> and gunpoint kidnappings and tsunamis and you, you, you've got to give me give me some color around that oh wow there they're all, they're all quite long, complicated stories, but let me give you the uh, short version. Uh, well, the paralyzing illness, I woke up when I was 11 years of age. You know, I'd always been really sport, sporty spice, um, loved tennis and running and riding my bike with the other kids on the street. So I was always involved in everything. And then I, I just woke up one morning and knew that I I couldn't move my legs and I knew that I wouldn't be able to walk. They just, just completely gone. And so I called my mum in and I said, Mom, I can't walk. And she's like, you'll be all right, darling. Just go back to sleep. You'll be fine. You know, that mum thing. And I'm like, okay, I probably will be. And uh, went back to sleep. But uh, not long after the bathroom called. So it was, uh, it was time. And, you know, I tried to just get out of bed and fell on my face. And I'd caught this random virus that, you know, back then they didn't have a name for. Um, They probably would now. But for the next eight months, I just had no use of my legs. And uh, we went to many, many, many specialists to see what it was, you know, what I could do. Um, but no one could give us any answers. Uh, and wow. I was, it was so it was, I was in year six, primary school, last year of primary school. So I had a lot of time off school and it was a, it was a really interesting thing from going from somebody who is so active and involved in everything to being really very isolated at home by myself, pretty much like we're all doing now. But of course, you didn't have Zoom to even see your face at that time. And of course, you know, as a young kid who just wants to be accepted, um, you all of a sudden are that person with really weird legs that no one wants to know very much about. And, you know, there's no social media. There's no way to contact people unless they come around to your house. So it was a pretty lonely time. Um, We finally found a doctor who gave me hope. And, you know, it's been an interesting thing to reflect on. Of course, I didn't get it then. At the time, it was just right. If you do these, if you do this program and these exercises, you will eventually get your um, legs moving again. And I just worked really hard at those. I was just, this is, this is not going to be my life. You know, they, the doctor said there was a 75% chance I'd spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. And I can tell you right now that did not 
that just was not going to be me. I I refused to think that was going to be my life. So I just did everything they said. And eventually I started to get um, muscle strength back. Um, I was able to have control because it was a nerve problem. So they, even when I started to be able to move them, they were all kind of like this. And yeah, I made a full recovery. Thank goodness. You know, and since then I've you know, I ran the Sydney Marathon after the 2000 Olympics. I followed that blue line that all those Olympians had the year before from uh, North Sydney across the bridge and out to Homebush and ended in the Olympic Stadium. Um, wow. So, yeah, I mean, I've been really, I was just really lucky. But, I, you know, what I learned from that was firstly, when there is hope, um, there is a way. It's just when, you, when you've lost hope, uh, that's when you really struggle. Um, when that light at the end of a tunnel does not, seems very, very dim, that's when it's really hard to persevere. And I think a lot of people are experiencing that right now, you know, in a same, same but different way. It just feels like we're looking down this dark tunnel and there's so much uncertainty and little hope for anything changing in a positive way anytime soon. And people are really struggling. And I, I just think that's, that's what we need in times like this, some hope. Um, and that's what I learned from that particular experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny because I, th- I think kids probably see things a little bit differently to, to, you know, obviously adults. But when that first happened to you, what was the reaction? I mean, was it were you afraid or was it just kind of peculiar curiosity? I mean, how did you feel when it, you first sort of realised your legs weren't working? Oh, I was devastated because I just, you know, it's such so, so the crazy things that worry you when you're a kid. But, I, you know, I was just, I'd just been named female sports star of the of the year from our athletics carnival. And I was going off to the zone carnival to represent the school in all these different events. And just, I mean, to me, that was devastating. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's the yeah. small world that you live in when you're that age, that these are the kind of worries. Um, I, you know, I didn't at the very first first part of it, didn't really see, well, this could be my life, therefore that's what I really should be scared about. The immediate fear was, or the immediate sadness was the fact that I I couldn't go to the Zone Carnival. Um, but then then as the weeks turned into months, um, yeah, that started, that was really frightening. It was really frightening. Yeah. Mm. No, I can imagine. I can imagine. That's, uh, I, I have a oh, well. It's a general sort of belief, but I, I find um, in in the absence of clear kind of communication and you know somebody painting a picture, basically, in, in the absence of clear communication, humans generally fill that void often with the worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah, we catastrophize. Yeah, yeah. I think I might have. I might have caught that back then, actually. I have been prone to a bit of catastrophizing still in my adult life, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, to be truthful. <laughs> but I think we all do. And I think it's it's your comment about the times we're in at the moment I think is really relevant. It's, you know, pe- people, I think, it, you know, even if you told someone it's going to be 12 months of pain with, you know, lockdowns, this, that and the other, I think people can get through that stuff if they know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, if they know that there's a plan, if they know that, that, that you know, there's some, as you say, hope yeah. that we're going to get through all this. So, yeah, look, that's it's really interesting. Um, t- tell me, okay, you've been held up at gunpoint. Yes, um, I have. I was a f- young and footloose and fancy-free backpacker in my 20s like um, most 
people are. And I did a big trip on my way back. I'd lived in London for a couple of years and done Europe and Middle East and, uh, you know, I'd, Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, like, you know, I've wow. to think that I was in Damascus and, I mean, such a beautiful city and, like, you know, people won't be backpacking through there anytime soon. But on my way back to Australia, I had five months in eastern Africa, uh, southeastern Africa, and hitchhiking and camping and doing it pretty rough to stretch out the dollar so I could last as long as possible. And I'd come from Kenya across to Zaire, to the mountain gorillas, um, back through Uganda, and then all the way down the east coast into South Africa. And I'd arrived in Durban. Uh, we had some family friends that I was able to stay with and, you know, finally have a proper shower and wash my hair and things like that. And uh, we had, because I was with the boyfriend at the time and we'd been hitching a lot and we had this in our head, like we just want to hitch all the way to Cape Town. We're going to do it all the way to Cape Town and tick that off. And these friends were saying, well, that's fine, but as long as you go like through the middle and then down and then across, because you can't go the shortcut through this area called the Trans Sky region because it is the most dangerous part of South Africa. And we're like, oh, no way. You know, it's it's like going 500 kilometres instead of 100 kilometres. Like, we're not <laughs> going to do that. No way. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for days they tried to convince us not to do it. But, of course, you know, 20-something thinking, no, there will be no problem at all, having no comprehension of the area's history or anything, just thought we're invincible. Um, but they said, okay, well, if you decide to go, Make sure you get a hitch from the beginning of the region right through out the other side, one hitch. Do not get dropped along the way and then have to get another hitch because that's when you'll be in trouble. We said, okay, we can, we can do that. Anyway, we waited eight hours and no one was picking up someone and going all the way through. So we're just like, ah, oh, stuff it, we'll be fine. So we got in this, we got in this hitch and it was with this um, Scottish guy actually and he was there as a voluntary policeman in South Africa. Wow. And it was very funny, he had lots of colourful stories and we had a great ride but he was dropping us off in the, cent the, the kind of the capital of that region. At the time it was called Untata. And as we were approaching, he said to me, have you got a knife? And I said, well, um, yeah, I've got my Swiss Army knife, you know, to open my can of tuna that I eat every day. And he's like, no, 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 you're going to need a knife. Open the glove box and take one of mine. And so he gives me this knife like this. I'm like, wow. what? And it was and, then and, and for those listening, in. by the way, it's already cut across you because obviously people can't see your hands going oh, up. Right. But, <laughs> but, but for everybody who's seen uh, Crocodile Dundee and saying, you know, th now that's a knife, that's, that's about knife. the size of it. <laughs> that's what I had. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, at that point, I started to get a bit nervous that he really thought we would need a knife. And then it's like, well, if I need a knife and I'm in a situation where I'm going to need a knife, am I the kind of personality type who's going to use this knife? I don't think so. But maybe it'll just scare people off. I don't know. I don't know what I'm about to walk into. So we, we get out of the car and he waves us goodbye and it's, you know, it's kind of about 4.30, 5 o'clock by this stage. And I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, Simon, where we were just walking away and all the hairs on my body and my back, my back but I don't have hairs on my back. Um, just, <laughs> just to make that clear. But like, 
Everything just started to tingle because we knew we were in deep trouble. There was this probably, I don't know, over a hundred people that just started to kind of close in around us. Mm. Um, you know, mostly men. Um, and it was absolutely terrifying. I thought, holy mackerel, we, we're in deep trouble here and I don't know what we're going to do. And I, you know, I don't know what this knife's going to do with a hundred odd people closing in. And just as I was just starting to feel the first points of panic, um, this big kind of Jeep car thing went past and these, these kind of army looking people, uh, sort of screaming something out of the window, not in English, obviously. And, mm. I don't know what they were saying to us, but they looked really dangerous. And then they came back around again, jumped out of the car with their AK-47s pointing at us to get us in the car. And I'm like, that's it. <laughs> you know, it's all over now. We've, we're being kidnapped by some rebel group and that's it. Um, so we, you know, get forced into the car with these guns pointed at our head and um, they take off. And we just, I'm just about to be sick from fear. And anyway, one of them can speak English and he tells us that they're actually what they call the Armed Forces Reaction Group. And they had done that to protect us, to get us away. Because they said, if you had stayed there for one minute longer, you'd be dead. Yeah, so wow. They had kind of, they'd seen what was going on. These two gringos, you know, the only ones in the whole place, um, at dusk, stupid, stupid, stupid. And anyway, they picked us up and took us away so that we kept our lives. But it was, you know, that day was one of those days where you thought mm, this could definitely have been the day that everything was over. Wow. Yeah, talk about threading the needle. Jeez. Oh, yeah. And just, you know, again, like the learning about, you know, risk-taking, obviously when you – when you've got businesses, you you do have to take some risks, right? To to innovate and be creative. It's it's a risk every day. You're trying to do different things, but you know there's really good people out there that you should listen to, mentors and people who know better than you. That uh, you've got to have the courage to say, actually, I don't have all the information. Um, there's people who know more than I do, and I should listen to that. And that, on reflection, of course, is what I we should have done at the time. Yeah, wow. It's um I I mean I can't imagine I've never had anybody point a gun at my head, so let alone be in an environment where I like that. I mean I I've been in certainly in environments where I've been very afraid but not necessarily afraid for my life from the danger of other people and it's um you know it's funny we we have a little saying in our company when people are feeling quite stressed or if they're a bit overloaded with work and you know we all have those moments where we feel quite stressed. But but our saying is, look, calm, calm down. No one's going to die if you don't get that done or if yeah. you don't finish this by that day. Like just pick the most important thing, work on that and work through it, right? And it's just – but this whole like nobody's going to die if you don't get that done today, so just drop the stress. Don't you put that on you. Yeah, so uh, it is funny, isn't it, how stress can impact us? But, you know, I think we can get ourselves very, very worked into a state, whether it's business or personal, whatever. But, you know, the, the old lizard brain's telling you to run for your life. But really, like, 
it, it most things aren't life and death, whereas that situation clearly was. Yeah, and it, you know, it's that, that whole thing of perspective, isn't it? That, and obviously, you do a really good job of that in your business by just giving perspective to these situations. And you know, if we don't get it done, or it's, or, or even if we stuff it up, um, it's not the end of the world. We're not going to die yeah. from it mostly, most of the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Maybe a little bit of embarrassment. <laughs> yeah, correct. Maybe shame comes in it and guilt, but you know, it's not death. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about about your original business, um, you know, the one that you exited. At the time I was the, a teacher. I was teaching in a, in a secondary school here in Sydney uh, and I loved teaching. I really, I really did. I found it incredibly rewarding. Um, but my pay packet didn't seem to cover the lifestyle that I wanted. And um, I knew I needed to get a second job. So I went and did my personal training qualification and started to do personal training before school, after school, and on the weekends out of my stinky garage that I had with, you know, starting off, I, I we bought $200 worth of secondhand equipment from cash converters and um, operated out of the stinky garage. <laughs> and I did that for about two and a half years uh, while I was teaching, but I just started to get really busy and um, I was getting a lot of referrals and, you know, this was a time where personal training was not a thing. There was one other studio in a five-kilometre radius when I started my business and there was no outdoor trainers at all. And anyway, as I became really busy, I wasn't doing either job very well in the end and my husband had been, um, you know, saying, look, you know, I think you should give this a go. You're obviously really good. You're getting the referrals give it up. And, but I was like, oh, the security of a wage and superannuation and sick leave. It, I'd come from uh, public service parents. My mum's a teacher. My dad's a, a policeman. Like the thought of uh, going out on my own just had never been, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. But one day as I was driving over the Sydney Harbour Bridge to work, I just had one of those moments. It was like, that's it. I'm going to resign today and went straight into the principal's office, said I'm resigning and um, he, he was like, what, what, what? And anyway, teaching teaching at the time gave you 12 months leave without pay that you could just test things out and it was like a safety net. So he encouraged me to take that, which I did. Nice. But um, it only took a, six, six to eight weeks after I uh, started in the new year that I had reached my 12-month financial goal, so I decided to resign. So, that, <laughs> you know, once if you hold on to the position, it's really annoying for the school. They can't get the good teacher. And so I resigned and um, started it full-time and went, moved out of my stinky garage into the first <laughs> premises and then we had to move premises two more times as I grew uh, in the end, I had about 15 trainers who worked for me uh, with support staff. Uh, I became the president of our industry association. We, we won many awards. And then 17 years later, I was able to, to sell that business for the price I asked for and the terms I asked wow. for. Yeah. And what, did, what did your, um, were, were your parents still with you when you launched the business? 
Yes, they were. Yeah, they were. Um, and and what, what was their reaction? They were pretty nervous. They didn't know what the <laughs> hell I was doing <laughs> or why I was doing it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. Uh, d- yeah. And it, it, it truly, I, it was just, so, I had no idea what I was doing. I truly had no yeah. idea. All I knew was I liked it and I, li- I really liked people and I really liked helping them change their lives for the better and somehow I was, you know, finding my own path to do that. But, you know, of course, there was a massive boom in personal training here in this country. When I sold the business, there were 33 studios within a five-kilometre radius. Wow. And probably, I don't know how many outdoor trainers, you know, sole operators, um, I don't know, hundreds probably, yeah. So, so what was the business called? Uh, Jumpstart. Jumpstart. Okay, cool. So, and, and so what, what year was it? So you went for 17 years. What year was it that you actually exited? Uh, I exited in 2015. I sold it. Yeah, in. okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is the peak period for for personal training and gyms. It's it's a bit of a joke, you, you know. My my local shops up the road. It's about 500 meters up the road from me, and uh, they just seem to have multiple shops of everything. You know, there's got to be two pharmacies, and then there's got to be two bakers and two butchers and two everything. Um, and now we actually have four gyms it's up oh, there with real God. estate and but one's a pilates studio and one's a yeah. gym and then one's a f45 or whatever and it's like but i it never ceases to amaze me i'm going how can four gyms in one area actually make money i just i know uh, it's incredible yeah yeah it really is mm, but it sounds like you yeah well you, you know it's funny it sounds like you you got your timing right because it's you know we often hear about you know there's so many great ideas out there that die on the vine because just their timing in the market's not right but but clearly you 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 know you were there at the right the right stage yeah just just got lucky with that i mean it wasn't as i said there was no no business plan with it it was just it just evolved as it went i mean i didn't you know, business plans later on, but uh, certainly not to begin with going, oh, there's a gap in the market here. I'm going to step into it. It's like, yeah. I just need some more money so I can buy matching shoes to my dresses. That's all it was. You know? <laughs> so motivated by the important stuff. That's Absolutely. fair enough. <laughs> Whatever it takes to motivate us, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so what, at what point during this journey did you start thinking about actually exiting your business? Uh, about five years before, I did some um, exit workshops uh, just to understand what that would look like. It was offered to me through my uh, local um, business banker. And, you know, I had really not thought at that time that I wanted to exit. But I had just because they made you and forced you to kind of have that plan, I had 2015 because it seemed a long way off. This was in 2010. Oh, yeah, five years is a long way off. I'll, I'll think of that being my exit date. Um, but of course, life gets in the way and you just keep on keeping on. And I knew that from what I'd learned that really for the three years prior to your exit, you do some things quite differently. Um but life crept up on me and it got to 2014. I was like, oh, hang on, that's that year next year that I was going to exit. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> quite really um, done the plan like I should have in a very, very strategic way. But at that stage, I was definitely ready to, to exit. I had, and so I made the decision that I would anyway exit. Um, but the thing for me, Simon, was that I, I had been anally retentive about processes and systems and getting things down on paper 
So I had, I mean, I had done it anyway, in a way. I, we had what we called the red bus book that if I got hit by a red bus, um, everything was listed from the moment anyone would walk into the business to the end of the day. Excellent. And I'd also, for a number of years, uh, maybe 10 years, probably 10 years by the time I sold, I hadn't actually been taking clients myself. I was um, the business owner, not the personal trainer. Um, so that, you know, firstly, there was a big shift to do that. And that, you know, as it is for most people who start on the tools in any business to shift off those tools and actually become the person. So first it was coming off the tools and being the face of the business. Um, there was a very strategic, um, marketing kind of plan around that. But then in 2010, uh, of course, when I, learn more about exiting, I knew that I couldn't be the real face of it because if that was what tied all my clients and my staff to me, not the business, I wouldn't have a sellable product. So I had to start, even though it was really uncomfortable, to stop being the face of the business because I really liked that. I liked to be, that was my style. You know, I really loved it. And I probably didn't do that um, as much as I could have if I'd had that three year of really nutting down and planning. Uh, but I had done it enough that it was still a sellable product when it came to the time. Yeah, fabulous. It's, um, you, you've nailed, you know, just there, one of the, the big factors we always look at in, in business transactions is, you know, how, how closely linked is the owner to the clients and even, and even suppliers. Um, sometimes it's a supplier relationship that's highly dependent. And so, yeah. you know, I guess, I guess anytime there's a dependency, there's a risk, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Definitely. Interesting. And, and, and when you came to, to actually doing an exit, how did you go about it? I mean, did you, did you have a broker or an advisor or someone who helped you? Yes, I did. I, um, I used a broker who really mm-hmm. helped me. Um, thank goodness I did did it that way. I felt that just, oh, gosh. I mean, I was lucky. Like, truly, from the time that I had the first meeting with that broker to me handing, from me stepping out completely and not having to return for anything else was three months. Oh, wow. That's yeah. very quick. It was very quick. Um, I mean, firstly, because I... I, you know, I, as I said, I had all the, you know, I had all the spreadsheets, I had all the processes, all, all that was already done. So um, from what he told me, that was quite unusual for somebody coming in and wanting to sell a business. Uh, I had, I, I had a lot of different assets that were sellable and products. And so, yeah, uh, the, but, you know, it was still such a stressful experience. Like, Oh my gosh! Yeah. I wouldn't wish it on anyone to <laughs> sell a business. It is so stressful when it, you've built it from nothing. Oh my gosh, that's hard. It's really yeah, hard. Yeah, yeah. When the, the the decision to actually exit was it because what 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 was driving that for you? I had felt that I'd given everything I could to it. I didn't know what else to do to make it bigger or better. Um, I you know I. Right throughout the whole process, as I said, I, like I had no, I had no business experience or education. Uh, it was learn how I go, learn as I go, trial and error, trial and error, <laughs> lots of errors. P- 
pick myself up, <laughs> try again. <laughs> um, but I had a real growth mindset. I wanted to uh, continually learn how to do it better. And so I just was, I, I just soaked up everything I could about having a better business with, you know, within my industry, um, but also outside of my industry, trying to get ways to do it better that I could see in other industries that I could put in um, the one I was in. Um, but I, yeah, I just got to the point where I didn't know what else to do. And I, I felt that I'd, I'd given it everything I could. I was exhausted. I needed a break. 17 years of a business opening at six in the morning, three to eight 30 at night, six days a week. I wanted to sleep in basically. I yeah. <laughs> That's what I wanted. Um, and I was just ready for a new challenge. Yeah, yeah, that's cool and, and completely understandable. Did, did, did you have something in mind that you wanted to move on to already? Not at all. Had no idea. I just, I had uh, made the decision to take a sabbatical, I kept calling it, and I would just try and have a real good rest. And, um, <laughs> I mean, if you don't mind me going back to one of these uh, stories I've had, because it was pretty impactful with the sale of my business, in fact. For the 13 years prior to the business selling, I also had another business. Um, it was a not-for-profit called Jumpstart Foundation. And we, we did uh, literacy projects and uh, girls' empowerment programs in Vanuatu. So it was, it was built on a model that we... Um, we're all volunteers and people would gift their, their money or their resources or their time to us to do the projects. We built a library on one of the remote islands, stocked it with all culturally, culturally um, relevant books, trained a local lady to be the librarian, used everybody in the local area to build it. Um, it was a, it was an incredible project. Uh, and, the day that I sold the business and uh, was sitting up at our local restaurant popping champagne with a few close friends and family uh, with the check in my back pocket, to, so to speak, um, Cyclone Pam, uh, the most catastrophic natural disaster that's ever hit Vanuatu, went through. And, you know, apart from causing horrendous damage throughout the nation uh she ruined the project that we'd only only just opened in fact and so the whole idea of taking time out after I'd sold that business didn't quite go to plan um because for the next five months I worked from dawn to dusk to raise enough money to rebuild uh that library uh so yeah I mean you know it's it's like it's just reminding me when you've asked me that question about what I was going to do of, yeah, just you think you you think you've like kind of put one thing to rest and things are going to be okay, but life continues to throw curveballs and cannonballs out of nowhere and uh, can make a real difference to your plans. <laughs> like yeah, indeed. Right now, of course. Mm. Yeah, look, yeah, look, absolutely. That's gosh, wow. So you, I mean, really, you, you, well, well, hopefully, you got to finish your champagne before you <laughs> had to had to launch into no this fear next. No that, Simon. No fear. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> I know where my priorities lie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. And and um, 
Talk to you a little bit about the process. I mean, obviously, what you feel comfortable chatting about, but but you know, you 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 found a broker somehow. They chatted to you. Three months is an extraordinarily quick time. I mean, did did you talk to a lot of different buyers, or how did that sort of unfold? Um, no, I didn't. I mean, he did a lot of the vetting. Obviously, um, I, the hardest part was once my there was. There's always that fine line of when do you tell your staff that you're going to sell. Um, knowing that my staff would want to buy it, but also knowing probably they didn't have the finances to do it. Yeah. And, but also, you know, like I'd always, I'm I'm a very honest and transparent person. I'd never, like I just felt really nervous about having all this going on in the background without them having any idea about it. And it was really, I found it really, really stressful Um, and I just felt like I was not being truthful. So I ended up telling them that that was what I was trying to do um, and the reasons why. And then, of course, everybody wants to buy it, me and my staff. <laughs> so, you know, luckily I've, I've got a broker who's a middle person, but, um, you know, that means that they get to see all your financials and, you know, even though, like, I had – you know, to a point, like I've, you know, everyone knew where we were as a business, you know, what percentages from our revenue we were getting each month, la, la, la. It's still a pretty exposing situation to have your staff see all of that. Um, yeah. Because yeah. within that is also your personal um, finances. So Definitely. Uh, I had two, two staff who in two parties of staff Two were going to go in partnership together to buy it and one other. And, and uh, you know, uh, there was this backwards and forwards and uh, anyway, it all kind of went, it all went pear-shaped because they couldn't, they couldn't afford it and wanted payment plans and, and I just wanted out. Um, so in the end, I actually had two couples um, that the broker had interviewed down out of a whole lot and then I had the final, I had two interviews each with the two couples and in the end I actually got to choose which one I was going to give my business to which because they were both willing to pay what I asked for and they were both willing to only have a two-week turnover time. Wow. Um, so that was a pretty amazing situation to be in, um, to get to choose who was going to take my business. Absolutely. Um, and, and uh, you know, I guess too there's, often we see anyway, I mean, there's the financial question, of course, but then there's the the sense of, well, who's going to look after this business yeah. maybe in the way I want them, want them to right. and look after the staff and all that stuff? Definitely, definitely. That was And that was such a big thing for me. And then, of course, the clients who, you know, I I had the best client retention in Australia and the best staff retention in Australia. And so that only comes from building really good relationships. And I had built really good relationships and I wanted to make sure that whoever was taking over would continue to nurture those relationships because that's that's what makes a successful business in that style of business, a service business like that one where, I mean, people go to their People see their personal trainers more than they see their best friends. Like, you know, there is such a relationship <laughs> in there. Um, so that was very important to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's lovely. And and just when it came to to the number, coming up with the number, what, was there some sort of formula or methodology you used? Uh, well, the accountant and the broker worked on that definitely. And I mean, it, you know, it's like any kind of 
real estate sale at any time and the, 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 the current situation will determine um, what that will be and what the percentage of profit um, percentage turnover, I can't remember what the so it was a multiple, multiple, multiple of profit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, gotcha. Okay, so that's 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 the formula. It was some sort of a multiple of it was your, a your multiple profit. Multiple of my profit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. And you know that had, unfortunately, from the time when I did that first exit interview workshop, that multiple had decreased um, market value wise since then. Uh, so it wasn't as exciting as I had thought it was going to be based on the five years previous, yeah, okay. um, but it was still very good. And it, it, it was what I, it, it, it was what it was. You know, you can't, you can't sell a house for a million dollars if it's only a one bedroom unit, you know, in a market, w- which is the center of Sydney compared to a regional area. You know, it's all that, yeah, all those yeah. complex things that go into it. Just out of interest there, you know, with the multiple kind of coming down or the expectations around that, was that? Do you, was there any kind of under, underlying reason for that? Do you think? Uh, from what I from what I gather, it was just what businesses were selling for at the time, comparatively. And, yeah. Okay. And and quite possibly um, due to the fact that there was a saturation by then of those businesses, I would imagine that would have had something to do with it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's it's one of those things. This this past year um, with COVID and whatever else, I think it, the, the the market certainly what we've seen has operated quite differently to how most people would expect. Um, I think a lot of people who owned businesses who were thinking of selling thought, "Oh, this is a crisis. It's not the time to sell. Clam up. You know, let's sit on the sidelines," because they didn't think they'd be able to get good value for their business. Yeah. Whereas what actually happened was. The whole world shifted, looking for new places to invest and diversify their models. So there was so there's been so many buyers in the market, and there's been so much capital flowing through the market. I mean, anybody who's seen any of the news articles in the last few months, you know, they're talking about this being one of the biggest years in M and A in the last ten years, and and it's just fascinating. It's, it, it wasn't yeah. what people, a lot of people, well, the person on the street thought would happen, but um, you know, I was explaining to one client how. You may think that your business will be in a better position to sell in three years' time just because you're working on your internal stuff. But in three years' time, you, even though your business may have improved, you may not get a better valuation in three years' time because the market itself has shifted. Because we so, can't control that ex- external environment, right? Absolutely. And so just when you mentioned that comment, it just made me think about the, the sort of scenario that we're in at the moment with, with so many owners wondering, I guess, what they should do and the uncertainty of markets and what's going on. And yeah. I, I just sometimes think that that global kind of, or and I say global, I don't mean necessarily worldwide, but that macro perspective um, is the thing that people should pay the most attention to and then into their company and then into probably their own personal perception. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, it's yeah, it's fascinating. And and so tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days. Yeah, at the moment, um, well, for the last number of years, I have been a keynote speaker, uh, an author. I published a book called Her Middle Name is Courage. Fantastic. Leadership Transforms Pressure into Performance, Chaos into Clarity and Rage into Resilience based on uh, a number of the stories that we've spoken about and, and, and a, a few more of my Cat With Nine Lives stories, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> including this in Tsunami and Petrol Bombs and all of those ones. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, but just 
Yes, some storytelling from the the kind of interesting events that I've had in my lifetime, but mostly about uh, the learnings that I've had, the insights that I've been able to extract from those particular situations to apply to people's business lives now uh, is the basis of the book. So I I do training and development within corporations um, and organisations around resilience and self-leadership and well-being and keynote keynote presenting and you know overseas and <laughs> yeah. around the country and going on into, into planes all the time staying in hotels <laughs> well at least at least hopefully back on back on the road with that soon but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. the last month all I've done is uh, been on the Qantas site cancelling flights and rearranging hotel accommodation <laughs> oh I hear you I hear you yes yeah. it's uh, as a travel you know somebody with a travel bug myself I'm I'm lamenting the loss of my usual trip so oh, no. very hard yeah uh, and um the the book there it sounds fascinating and i can see why you'd make a fabulous keynote speaker because you've got wonderful stories and you're a lovely person and you obviously communicate really really well um that that book is it available can people buy that online where do where, where would someone go if they're interested yeah, they can. They can go to my website, uh, HeidiDenning.com, H-E-I-D-I-D-E-N-I-N-G. And in the author tab, um, they can buy it there by in paperback, um, in a gift pack, uh, and also the digital version. Uh, oh, but, cool. Yeah. And it is, like, it's on Amazon and everything. But if you buy it from me, I can do a personalised signature and little message oh, for you. So that would lovely. be great if you could. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. Uh, well, look, what, what we'll do is we'll make sure we put a, a link there to your website and um, and other sort of socials and things like that in the um, in the show notes for this episode. Uh, are you, um, uh, you know, I want to ask you in a moment, Heidi, um, you know, if there's maybe one tip that you would share with your fellow entrepreneurs out there who, who are perhaps on their journey, perhaps they're thinking of buying or, you know, and they're in the build phase or thinking about selling even. But, um, you know, maybe there is one tip that uh, that you'd recommend. And, um, and and before I put you on the spot and ask you that, uh, I just wanted to check too, uh, you're on LinkedIn. I mean, uh, can, can people reach out to you? What, what's the best way for people to contact you? Yeah, I am on LinkedIn. I spend most of my time there out of all the socials. So uh, you can just find me there at um, Heidi Denning. I'd love for people to connect and um, let me know, you know, what you're up to. That would be wonderful um, because there's nothing like, you know, finding a community of like-minded people. I, th- I think especially in this time, one thing I think we've all learned over the last year is that as humans, we really crave connecting with other like-minded humans and that's really, really important for us. And uh, being an entrepreneur can be a lonely road. So uh, if anybody's listening who would like to, who thinks that I'm a like-minded person to them, I'd love them to connect with me. But, yeah, through my website or through LinkedIn, um, you can certainly find me there. Fabulous. And and as we always say on this show, if you are reaching out on LinkedIn, please put a little message with your connection request and stuff yes. like that. It can be a little bit weird otherwise. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, Heidi, is, is there one tip that you would uh, like? I know you've probably got 100 tips, but um, <laughs> is there one you'd pick on today to, to, to share with your fellow business owners? Uh, well, look, my... My a tip for life, really, and that this is certainly one I think has got me through uh, everything that I've done. And it comes to my favourite quote, which is, 
if it's going to be, it's up to me. And I think, you know, we'd all like to take a magic pill or <laughs> get on a fancy pants carpet and have us all move to 2024 when this <laughs> is over and <laughs> reach the goals that we're after or, or tick it, you know, tick that box on Airtasker <laughs> for yeah. somebody else to do it for us. But the fact of the matter is that we are the only ones who can create the life that we want and there are many things that we can't control, which we know now more than ever. ever. From a personal point of view, there'll, there'll always be young children, ageing parents, uh, injuries, uh, financial problems. And professionally, we're going to have pandemics that will change our business models overnight, that will make us work from home with small children knocking on the door. All these things we have no control of. Um, all we can do is take control of the things that we have control of and really be very clear about what that is um, because it's no good just saying, oh, you know, everything failed because of that, that and that. Uh, yeah. And that might be the case. There's definitely, you know, businesses, of course, that won't survive this time just because of what's gone on for them. But, you know, I think we've all got um, a responsibility to ourselves and our families and our communities just to do whatever it takes to take that one little step forward every single day to move towards some hope. Uh, I think that's beautiful and I think it's, it's yeah, spot on, uh, you know, and, and going sort of almost full circle here back to the, to the beginning of our, our chat, we talked a bit about stress and, and things like that and, and I guess... Um, you know where you put your focus and energy and all that stuff. I, I think we've we've got a philosophy on this show which I think dovetails dovetails very well into that tip is that you know we're big believers here that you know none of us are born to do business. You know we're, we're actually born to live our life, and yes. so the most that. important question we need to ask is what kind of life do you want? And then let's build a business to, you know, as a vehicle to deliver the life you want. So it's, you know, when you start looking at it like that, I think, you know, and, and certainly encompassing your tip there is, hey, decide for yourself and then go out and take, take ownership of it, right? Yeah, without doubt. Yeah, I love that. Heidi, I'm just truly honoured for you, you know, coming on the show and sharing your story. I, I really am grateful. It's been wonderful. I'm, I'm fascinated. I'll, I'll be looking to get the book and have a read of some of the other stories, as I hope um, many other people listening to the show will as well. Um, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Simon. Thank you very much. And uh, it's been wonderful to chat with you. My pleasure indeed. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. 
For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.